Yeah, the whole world's a stage and the people just play the part. I think it was Shakespeare that said that. Jesus has something to say about that as well. How many of you, you see a mask like that and just a little bit of you is just a little bit creeped out? Anybody else? I'm a little bit creeped out by masks. Some of you know this. I don't like clowns. My wife loves that about me because she just loves to poke at me and needle me with that. I think that might be one of the reasons why I don't like clowns is, come on, how creepy is that? A grown adult painted up with a smile on their face. What's really going on behind that mask? It's creepy, isn't it? What else is creepy is when Christians look one way and feel, act another way. It's creepy. We're going to talk about this this fall. Kicking it off today, we're going to do a five-week sermon series on this whole concept of what's it mean to be a Pharisee. The title of the series is Recovering Pharisees Like Me. And if you'll indulge me, I want to be just a little bit autobiographical about this. It would be my hope and my prayer that you would as well. If you have spent any amount of time in the church, let me say it this way, if you grew up in or have spent some time in our Christian subculture, this might be something you want to wrestle with. Pharisees. We're going to unpack that today. What is the meaning behind that word? Who were these people? Who are these people today? This word, recovering. There's an old book I read years ago, reread it in preparation for this series. It's called 12 Steps for a Recovering Pharisee. Does that language sound familiar? It's leaning on the addict's language. Hi, my name is Stan, and I'm a recovering Pharisee. 12 Steps Toward Recovery. Step one is acknowledging that you do have a problem. Some of us... We're very aware of this. We struggle with our inner Pharisee. It leaks at the most inopportune times. Some of us, well, maybe we have yet to know that we have a problem. I want to talk about this during this series. The title of today's message is My Inner Pharisee. I have one. And like I just said, it sneaks out sometimes at the most inopportune times. I'll never forget. When I started first wrestling with this, I was in my young 20s. I uh, had just gotten married. Dawn and I, she graduated college. We got married the next week, got back from our honeymoon the following week, and then um, like a month later, inside of a month, we were living in Las Vegas. We rolled into town to start my internship, like a 14-month-long internship. Rolled in like on a Thursday night. Friday night, maybe 24 hours later, I said goodbye to my brand-new bride, and I jumped on a church bus, and I went with a whole bunch of church staff on a retreat, a staff retreat, to a casino. When in Vegas, right? 
state line Nevada, that line between Nevada and California. It was called Buffalo Bills Casino. It had an outdoor roller coaster, and then it like went down inside the building. It was pretty cool. I remember dropping off my bags upstairs in my room and walking downstairs into the casino part. This is where we were gathering in a, like a conference room space, and I stopped dead in my tracks. The pastoral care pastor was sitting there. Some of you know Tony, Pastor Tony Johnson. He's our pastoral care pastor. Can you imagine your shock if you walked down and you saw Tony pulling the one-armed bandit, <laughs> a slot machine lever? I need to make it clear, it wasn't Tony. This was long before I think I had even met Tony. His name was Ed Sweetman, and he looked at me, and he, um, I think he could tell the look on my face. My inner Pharisee was coming out. What are you doing? Oh, you sweet Midwestern born and bred boy. There's some opportunities here to talk about grace. There's some opportunities here to talk about Jesus and maybe not judging. And over the next year, we had these conversations. He never pushed it on me, but occasionally I would stop into his office and I would say, Ed, I've been thinking about this. What do you think about this? He said, well, that's, that's a good question. Like he didn't see the question coming. And he'd tease it out with me, and I'd get to process together a little bit with him. During that same era, a good friend of ours got baptized, got to be a part of his conversion experience. It was incredible. We started doing a Bible study together every Friday morning at Sam's Town Hotel and Casino. It went in Vegas, right? Why? Well, because they had the best breakfast for cheap. Like three bucks, you got all the steak and eggs you wanted. Every Friday morning, we would gather there. We would open up our Bibles. We would do a Bible study together. About halfway through that year doing that study together, he looked at me and he said, hey, what's the deal with you and alcohol? Oh, I was so smug in my response. You see, just like a week before, we had been invited to his house. He and his wife had prepared a special meal for us, and they had paired the wine and whatever they had prepared together well. And when they went to serve it, Don and I both politely declined. He said, what's the deal with that? Can you tell me about that? I was so smug. I said, oh, you're a brand new Christian. One of these days, one of these days, I'll explain that to you. And we don't need to talk about that today. And he said, no, I, I kind of want to know. So I made the mistake of doing a Bible study with him on that topic. Come to find out, Jesus' scripture, the Old Testament, oh my goodness, have you done this study? By and large, alcohol is referenced either positively or at least neutral. There are some cautions. Oh, by the way, there are some very good reasons to not touch alcohol. If you have a family um, history of alcoholism, if you struggle yourself, there are all kinds of good reasons. But somewhere along the way, they say more is caught than taught. Somewhere along the way, I made that a Jesus thing, that Jesus was commanding this of me. And I took it one step further. I was looking down my nose at others who chose to live out their freedom, according to Galatians. That's a problem. In the middle of that study, I had all these moments come crashing in that I had to go backwards in my brain, like five years before that moment, and repent 
of acting like a Pharisee. For example, I remember standing in a kitchen. We had been invited over. My uh, youth group had been invited to come over and swim in this house. The, the man and his wife who owned the house, he served as an elder at another church in town. He was a Christian leader. He said, hey, practicing the gift of hospitality. Come on over. Make yourselves at home. Help yourself to our pool in the backyard. There's soft drinks in the fridge. Help yourself. I'll never forget my buddy. He came and psst, whispered to me. I whispered back, Pharisees, a lot of times we whisper to each other got to come and see this. We go into the kitchen. He opens up the fridge, and this is what we're looking at. We stood there in that man's kitchen and judged him to hell. How dare he? A Christian leader. What were he and his wife doing last night? There's a half-empty bottle of wine in the fridge. How dare he? How does a teenage boy come to think that way and act that way? I just wonder, in my Christian subculture, what was it that I caught? Make no mistake, there was sin that happened in that kitchen that day. But it had very little to do with a beverage. It had everything to do with the condition of my heart. We'll spend five weeks together unpacking this thought. We have to be so careful with this. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is speaking to a group of people who, whose influence the Pharisees had touched. They were very influential in the first century. Jesus is speaking on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, speaking probably to a more agrarian country folk crowd. I don't know if there were Pharisees present in the Sermon on the Mount, but their influence was sure there. Matthew chapter 7, listen to these words. Jesus says, do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Okay. You who look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. This is absurd language. It's a bizarre word picture, is it not? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. By the way, that mask thing we were talking about just a bit ago, the etymology of this word, the Greek word hypocrite, it's mask. Hiding. Standing behind this facade. Jesus is saying, you bunch of clowns. Adventures and missing the point. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is an absurd word picture. Every time I read this, there's this image in my brain. I couldn't find the image that I think of, probably from my childhood or early youth ministry days, but I did find this one, and it illustrates the same. Dude, I think I got something in my eye. Hey, don't worry. I'll help you get it out. It's absurd, isn't it? Jesus is saying, hey, when you judge, that's what you look like. The rest of the world and even your Christian brothers and sisters look at you and say, come on, clown, stop it. Hear me. Doing right is a poor substitute for knowing Jesus. We don't smoke, we don't drink, we don't chew, we don't go with girls that do. Mm. Doing right is a poor substitute for walking with Jesus. 
You're designed for relationship, not just a bunch of do's and don'ts. How about this? Let's take it one step further. Knowing right is a poor substitute for showing Jesus. We're called to make Jesus famous, to put him on display. We have to be so careful here. Jesus once said this to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, verse 15. It's in a series of woes we're going to look at here in a minute. He says, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You mask-wearing bunch of clowns, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a, a child of hell as you are. That is strong language. What are you converting them to is what he's asking. Oh, we have to be so careful this time of year. This is a perfect time. For us to examine the relationship between Jesus and the Pharisees. Why? We talked about this last fall. You have one life to invest. And then we ask the question, who's the one life that you're investing in? Listen, this is the time of year where we double down on our, on our influence. Kids are going back to school this week or last week. Moms and dads, you'll be following them to school functions. You're going to be rubbing shoulders with folks. This is the time of year, those of you who are in, killing it in business, you're traveling all over the world, all over the country, you're rubbing shoulders with people. This is a time to think about your influence are you putting Jesus on display, or is there something else in the soup? Let's influence well. I want to give you an overview today of the idea of the Pharisees. We're looking at who, who were the original Pharisees. Better question, who are they today? If you dare, I would invite you to look inward into your own heart. Here's the question we're looking to answer. What was Jesus' beef with the Pharisees? There's a lot of confrontation in your New Testament between Jesus and the Pharisees. Actually, they are mentioned either collectively or as individuals. They're mentioned 98 times in your New Testament, mostly in the Gospels. And to grasp why Jesus had reservations with these guys, we must first understand who they are. They're a prominent religious group in ancient Judea. They have their beginnings at least 150 years before Jesus. And they were uh, dedicated, I mean severely dedicated, to upholding the Mosaic law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the law, the Torah, and the Old Testament, and upholding Jewish tradition. They were meticulous in their observance of religious rituals. They were adhering to strict guidelines of, get this, outward Appearances, mask wearers, hypocrites, a bunch of clowns. But Jesus saw beyond their external, can I use the word religiosity? And he saw genuine transformation of the heart. I think that would be his goal today as well. I want to share with you a whole list of hazards that the Pharisees encounter. Hazards of mask wearing. By the way, you could, every time you see the word hazard, you could use the word mask, especially if you're going to kind of hold them at arm's length and say, well, let's talk about the, the Pharisees. They are wearing a mask. If, however, you're willing to step into their shoes and recognize that sometimes you also might struggle, you're a recovering Pharisee, 
Well, then you kind of have to use the word hazard because we're talking about the condition of your own heart. I dare you. Think about these as hazards, like this one. There's the hazard of of good intentions. Again, you could look at this and say, well, this is the mask they wear, or this is the hazard that I experience. The hazard of good intentions. You've heard the proverbial saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Or maybe it's cousin, hell is full of good meetings, but heaven is full of good works. It's not enough, in other words, just to think the thing. You have to do it as well. You see, when we talk about the Pharisees, it's essential to remember that they're devoted to their faith. They hold the Scriptures in high regard. But are they doing what they say they're doing? There's a hazard of simply having good intentions. How about this hazard? If you're just looking at them at arm's length, this is a mask as well. But I think it's a hazard, for me, of legalism. It wasn't that this group of people were terrible people or inherently evil, but they fell into the trap of legalism. They focused so much on outward obedience that they neglected the weightier matters of the heart, love, mercy, compassion. Their actions were more concerned with impressing others than genuinely connecting with God. This is a hazard that threatens to steal your soul. Don't let it be a mask that you wear, legalism. How about this one? The hazard of selective rule-keeping. I'll take that one, thank you very much. I kind of like that one. I'll take that one very much. Or maybe the story that I told earlier, you know, our culture, through prohibition, there was some legalism, the temperance movement. The church said, I kind of like that. Let's walk that inside the walls of the church. The problem is the culture moved on. The church didn't. It became legalism, at least in my childhood. This is a problem. Selective rule-keeping. What else do we have? The hazard of religious elitism. I'm better than you are. I know God. I'm better than you are. This is a problem today. If you live that way, you're one. You have one life to invest. Who's the one life you're investing in? They're going to think you are a jerk. It's possible, by the way, that this started even with good intentions itself. The root word, the meaning of the word Pharisee, we're not sure where that comes from. It does, though, have connection to the Hebrew word, which means separate, separate, or detach. This might have begun with good intentions. We're going to live separate. There's a concept there, a spiritual concept that's holy. We're going to be different, set apart. The problem is if we become so set apart and we hold culture out at arm's length, well, we lose our opportunity to influence and to connect and just be a human being with people who desperately need to see Jesus in us and through us. Here's a hazard. The, they, they, they had the hazard of prioritizing sacrifice over mercy and compassion. They would snub their one on the way to worship. No mercy, no compassion, but I'm going to go do for God the things that I think God would require of me. Jesus was often quoting the prophet Hosea, like, for example, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, when he says, listen, this is what I want. I desire mercy 
not sacrifice. If you don't love your neighbor well, stop dressing up and coming to worship, to put it bluntly. How about this hazard? Empty religion. Hollow tradition. Just showing up and doing the thing that I did because mom and dad did the thing. Maybe grandpa and grandma did the thing. Ritual. Empty religion. This is a hazard. And the world, I'm afraid, sees it as a mask. There's a list of woes if we want to go biblical about this, and we're going to over the next five weeks. There's a whole lot to tease out. If you would open up your Bible right now to Matthew chapter 23, I want to show you a whole list of things that Jesus calls out of the Pharisees. Now, he calls foul. You could read similar lists, not just in Matthew, but in Mark and in Luke. I want to focus on Matthew chapter 23. The context for this one is this is Monday. Yesterday, Sunday, was the triumphal entry. It's the week of the Lord's passion. At the end of the week, there's a crucifixion. This is the beginning of that week, and Jesus marches straight into the temple, and he looks the Pharisees in the eyes, and he says, Woe to you! Woe to you! And here's seven woes that he throws at them. Here's the first one. By the way, all of these... They spent too much time focusing on the letter of the law and being right that they missed the spirit of the law, God himself in the thing. Here's the first one. He condemned the Pharisees for keeping people out of the kingdom of heaven. You talk about walking up and just slapping them in the face right off the bat. That's exactly what he does here. You're keeping people out. Look at this. I'm in Matthew 23, verse 13. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You mask-wearing clowns. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Boy, that's strong language. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let enter those who are trying to. Jesus is the only way to heaven. And he's saying, I'm right in front of you, and you missed the point. That's the first woe. Here's the second one. Condemning them for teaching their converts the same hypocrisy as they themselves practiced. We looked at that passage earlier in the message. Matthew 13, verse 15, he told them that they're, listen, you're making your convert twice as much a child of hell. How about this one? Let me ask you this question, though. If you're a church kid, If you grew up in a Christian subculture, is it possible, I'm just throwing this out there, is it possible that your parents, maybe your Sunday school teachers, is it possible that they had some pharisaical tendencies? And is it possible that some of those things, well, they get caught rather than taught? And if you're really honest, some of those have made their way into your own heart as well. I'm just asking. It's possible. Number three. He referred to them as blind guides and blind fools. Matthew 23, verse 16. Woe to you, you blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone, anyone who swears by the gold of the temple, they're splitting. The, you can swear by this. You can't swear by that. Well, they're bound by that oath. You blind fools. And he points out the hypocrisy. Which is greater, the gold or the temple itself that makes the gold sacred? You're swearing even by the wrong thing. You're parsing words. 
and you're all smug about it as you do it, I can't help but think about the acceptable Christian subculture cussing that I grew up with. We would say, gosh darn. What we really meant was GD. What we really meant, well, I don't even know sometimes what was screaming in my heart. But it's acceptable to say this, right, and not that. How about this one, number four? He called out their hypocrisy in the practice of tithing. Oh, you're tithing from your spice cabinet. Like, you're taking one, two, three, nine pieces of basil. The tenth goes to God. One, two, three, nine pieces of thyme. The ten goes to God. You're tithing from your spice cabinet, but you're missing the important things like this. He says in uh, verse 23, you neglected the more important matters of the law, justice. When there's injustice happen, does it break your heart? Mercy, faithfulness. You're tithing from your spice cabinet, but you're missing the, you're not keeping the main thing, the main thing. He goes on, he uses a hyperbole. You talk about strong language. He says, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. That's an absurd word picture as well. In other words, you're being so careful to avoid minor uh, offense of minor things of little importance. You're straining gnats but you're tolerating or even committing greater sins. You're swallowing camels. When you make it a list of do's and don'ts, Jesus is leaning on older conversations that had happened even with the prophets in the Old Testament. Like Isaiah in chapter 64, verse 6, he's saying, absent of love, of justice, absent of mercy, absent of faithfulness, all of your righteous acts, those things that you're doing for God, they're like filthy rags. Not to put it too crassly, but that word, filthy rags, it literally means filthy minstrel rags. I wonder what just happened inside your stomach, your heart. You heard me say that. Oh, I'm a little embarrassed. I'm a little shamed. That's exactly what was going on. God was saying in very strong language, I'm repulsed by your acts of righteousness when they are not married, when they're not preceded by acts of love and justice and mercy and faithfulness. Well, the fifth and the sixth and the seventh woes, Jesus goes to tease out and talk about levels of hypocrisy that characterized these religious leaders. Like number five, he likens them to dishes that were cleaned on the outside but left dirty inside. That's just disgusting. It's just for show to clean the outside of a dish if you're not going to clean the germs out of the inside. He says, this is what's inside your heart, greed and self-indulgence. I don't know about you, but as an American consumer, I look at those two words and I think, oh, have I cleaned the outside and I've missed some heart work here. We talked about hypocrisy. We talked about masks. We talked about clowns. There's really something spooky about a clown, yes. There's something spooky about a mask, yes. There's also something spooky about a perfumed, masked, painted-faced Christian gossip who says, bless their heart, when what they really mean is I can't stand that blankety-blankety good-for-nothing child of God. I can't stand them. There's something spooky about that, isn't there? How about this one, number six? He said they were spiritually dead. 
dead on the inside. He calls them in verse 27, whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones and decay and everything unclean. It's, in, it's my opinion that when he said this, he was teaching in the temple, and all he had to do for illustration, he didn't have a teaching monitor. All he had to do was point across the Kidron Valley because in the first century and even for a couple centuries before that, they had been burying their dead over there. Guess what was there? On the Mount of Olives, whitewashed tombs. You can see them even today. It's hard to tell what you're looking at here. It's like a sea of white and a couple of Orthodox gentlemen who are conducting a funeral. These are all whitewashed tombs. Let's look, pull back just a little bit, and you can see that the whole hillside of the Mount of Olives is filled with these first century tombs, whitewashed tombs. He's saying that looks so pretty even from this distance, but you and I both know what's inside there is death. Number seven, he pointed out their human nature. He points out to them that they belong to an ancient tradition that their fathers and forefathers had struggled with this. And I would point out to you, maybe we could struggle with it as well. They pushed back and said things like this. If we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. We wouldn't be guilty of that. That was Monday, Friday. Some of them were shouting, crucify him. Hypocrisy, mask wearing. Listen, there are two profound truths. Here's the number one. People don't like or didn't like the Pharisees. Then they did not like these guys. Why would you? They were kind of stuck up, kind of snobbish behavior. Let me take that one step further. Here's a second profound truth. People don't like Pharisees today. I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say this. You're one. You have one life to invest. Who's the one life that you're investing in? You have a one. I hope somebody that you're praying for, somebody that you're investing in, somebody that you're desperately trying to show Jesus to. Your one doesn't like your pharisaical tendencies. A dying world desperately needs to see Jesus, not your inner Pharisee. So today, as you go back to school, show them Jesus. This week, as you head into the office or wherever it is your vocation takes you, show them Jesus. Be so careful not to put on your list of do's and don'ts and rights and wrongs, and you should do this, you shouldn't do that. You should vote this way, you shouldn't vote that way. You should act this way, don't act this way. Show them Jesus. The question is, are we? I'm not sure we are. I think we have some room to grow in this area. That's why we're doing this series. I read a, a, a stat that's a bit alarming this past week. There are 91,815 dams. Did he just cuss in the pulpit? No, dams, D-A-M, those things that hold a tide of water back. There are 91,815 dams in our country. The average year or age of those dams is 61 years old. 
Some of you are thinking, do we live downstream of Morse? Do we live downstream of Geist? That's a little spooky, a little scary. Over the last 10 years, the number of dams that could lead to a loss of life if they failed has grown by about 20% to 16,000. That means there's 16,000 dams in our country, the average age of which are 61 years old. If they failed, it would kill somebody. Similarly, can I show you some research that's 10 years old? I suspect it's already contributing to a loss of eternal life. You could read this if you'd like to unpack it a little bit further on your own this week. If you look in the sermon notes section of our Venture app, you'll find that we've hyperlinked that story there. You can click on that. You can read it to your heart's content. I hope it breaks your heart the same way it broke mine. Because 10 years ago, 2013, the Barna Group, David Kinnaman led this study, asking the question, are Americans more like Jesus, American Christians, Jesus followers, are we more like Jesus or are we more like the Pharisees? Let me show you the findings. The findings reveal that most self-identified Christians in the U.S. are characterized by having the attitudes and the actions researchers identified as pharisaical. I'm going to show you what those were in a second. Just over half of the nation's Christians using the broadest definition of those who call themselves Christians. By the way, those are the ones that you're one they're looking at to see Jesus in them and through them. Qualify for this category 51%, just over half. They tend to have attitudes and actions that are characterized by, oh, I hate this word, self-righteousness. That was 10 years ago. What's this mean? Well, let me show you real quick. You could unpack this yourself if you click that link later. 51% of American Christians are over here, more pharisaical than 14% who have both Christ-like actions and attitudes. You'll note that 14% have Christ-like actions, but they don't feel like it. (laughs) Their attitude doesn't match. Over here, you've got 21% who feel like it. They're just not doing anything about it. Their actions don't match. 51% are more like Pharisees than Christians. And I know what you're thinking. Oh, not us, not our church. No way. Well, oh boy. Here's another graph you can look at. Let me just suffice it to say we're represented down there. You can unpack this yourself later if you'd like to study it a little bit closer. That was 10 years ago, 2013, and oh, I'm afraid some stuff has happened in the last 10 years. What baggage have we piled on top of that baggage since then? There have been some mighty contentious elections where we maybe have confused our position over the last 10 years. COVID, I wonder how history will judge the American church during this era. Perhaps the single greatest opportunity of our lifetime to put Jesus on display, both in actions and attitudes. Did we? Some? Maybe? What's happened over the last 10 years? Are you sure that your pharisaical tendencies aren't contributing to a loss of life. I talked about the failures of dams a bit ago. At the risk of cussing at the pulpit, there's another word there. You very well know what I'm talking about. That word is often linked to eternity. A dying, desperate, 
longing for Jesus, even if they don't know it yet, world. Desperately needs to see Jesus in us and through us. Let's be careful that our attitudes and our actions don't hurt their eternal destination. Can I share with you some of those questions? You could just kind of unpack these, and maybe you can do some self-diagnosis. Do we need to talk about this? Is this something that's worth spending a five-week series on? Well, I don't know. Here are some of the self-righteous actions that were in that survey 10 years ago. Just kind of keep your own score. How are you doing in this area? I tell others the most important thing in my life is following God's rules. These are pharisaical, self-righteous actions. Are you doing the right thing? How about this? I don't talk about my sins or my struggles. That's between me and God. Hmm. I've got it all together, right? I'm wearing a mask. What about this one? I try to avoid spending time with people who are openly gay or lesbian. Some of you just recoiled with that. Let me ask you this question. If Jesus were here today preaching the same redemptive story that he did 2,000 years ago, and he told the story of the Good Samaritan, who would he make the hero of the story? Is it possible in the first century he chose the most outcast by the Christian subculture group and he made them the hero of the story? Who do we look sideways at? Who do we look down our nose at? Who is an outcast perhaps of the Christian subculture today? Is it possible that Jesus would make them the hero of his story to get our attention? How do we act toward people? How about this one? I like to point out those who do not have the right theology or doctrine. You're wrong, I'm right. We argue on the Twitter verse or whatever we're calling X now. How about this one? I prefer to serve people who attend my church rather than those outside the church. I like people who are inside more than people outside. Does that step on your toes? These are self-righteous actions. How about, let's take two steps backwards, self-righteous attitudes. I find it hard to be friends with people who seem to constantly do the wrong things. Ouch. How about this one? It's my, not my responsibility to help people who won't help themselves. Listen, if they're not going to do it, how, what am I, how about this one? I feel grateful to be a Christian when I see other people's failures and flaws. I'm glad I'm not like that sinner over there. I think Jesus said something to the Pharisees, even to that tune. How about this one? I believe we should stand against those who are opposed to Christian values. How about this one? People who follow God's rules are better than those who do not. Are we? Or do we just live under grace? We're going to wrestle with that over the next several weeks. Jesus. Jesus calls us to live a different way. 98 times he goes after the Pharisees. We're going to spend some time exploring that. If this made you stop and think, don't miss next week. We're going to lean in on this in a big way over the next several weeks. Let me send you out of here with an action step, though. Let me put up those same survey questions that were gauging Christ-likeness. And could I just invite you, pick one of these to do better in this week. Double down on something maybe you're already doing well. Look at some of these. These are actions like Jesus, doing the things that Jesus would do. I listen to others to learn their story before telling them about my faith. We talked about this last summer, last fall. We talked about one life. Listen well to their story before you tell them your story. How about this one? 
In recent years, I have influenced multiple people to consider following Christ. It just leaks out of me. I talk about him where I go and live and do my things. Do we? Is he really the most important thing in our lives? How about this one? I regularly choose to have meals with people with very different faiths or morals from me. I'm leaning into this in a big way. How about this one? I try to discover the needs of non-Christians rather than waiting for them to come to me. What do you need? How can I help? How can I serve? How can I roll up? Jesus washed people's feet. Are we following actions like Jesus? How about this one? I'm personally spending time with non-believers to help them follow Jesus. Do we even spend time with folks from our perspective, are living far from God. Those are actions. Let's take two steps backwards again. What are we thinking before we act? Let's put these up on the screen. How about this one? I see God-given value in every person regardless of their past or present condition. I see a child of God when I look at a sinner. How about this one? I believe God is for everyone. He's the hound of heaven breathing down their necks, chasing them. He wants, he wants all people to come to him. Am I a part of the solution? Or am I part of the problem? How about this one? I see God working in people's lives even when they are not following him. He's doing something. He's pursuing them. He loves them. As a child of God, how about this one? It, it is more important to help people know God. It is more important to help people know God is for them than to make sure they know that they are sinners. That's a big deal. And how about this one? Last but not least, I feel compassion for people who are not following God and doing immoral things. Would you stand up with me? I want to pray for us. I don't know about you, but as I studied this, I felt my toes stepped on. But I don't want to just dance around with bruised feet. I want to do something about that. Could I invite you as we pray together maybe to double down and think through what's going to go on this week? What can you do that would be a proactive step where people, people see Jesus in you and people see Jesus through you more than your list of right and wrong and rules of do's and don'ts? Would you bow your heads with me? Would you close your eyes? And let's invite God to lead this season. God, I thank you. I thank you for the opportunity to open up your word and be reminded that human nature leaks. It was happening then and it happens today as well. And when we spend our time inside a space like your church, it's easy to forget that we're the redeemed and start to think that we're right. So Lord, I pray. I pray that you'd work on our hearts. Lord, invite us with open hands to say, God, teach me something, show me something, move me toward compassion, move me toward mercy, move me toward people who do not know you yet, and use us toward that end. We pray that prayer in your name, in Jesus' name.